Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. While the mental health of athletes has been a big topic of discussion, there was another debate that was recently reignited when Shikari Richardson was denied a spot in the Tokyo Olympics after testing positive for marijuana. Shikari said she smoked marijuana after learning about the death of her biological mother and said she smoked uh, because she needed to use it as a coping mechanism. But what does the science say about cannabis being a performance enhancer? Does it actually help? The short answer is no. There's no scientific evidence that it can make athletes bigger, stronger, or faster. In fact, it can increase heart rates and is especially damaging to the lungs if smoked. However, elite athletes and even regular people say that it can help them recover from tough workouts, reduce pain, improve sleep, and most of all, it calms their nerves and alleviates anxiety. For more on the conversation about marijuana and athletes, we'll speak to Anahad O'Connor, health reporter at the New York Times. You know, if you really look at the literature and interview folks on, on sort of both sides and, and scientists and advocates for it, I think the, the question really comes down to, you know, what do you consider a performance enhancing drug? You know, if we're looking at traditional metrics of performance, you know, things that, um, you know, like strength, uh, endurance, um, you know, precision, um, you know, those, you know, aerobic capacity, those sorts of um, measures of, um, uh, you know, athletic performance, then, you know, there's not a ton of research on the effects of marijuana, but generally what they find is that there's either no evidence, um, there's no benefit, or marijuana makes uh, these things worse. But then, you know, there's obviously a lot of athletes, um, and, the, and the data supports this, that are using um, cannabis in different forms, um, and they say that they use it around the time they exercise, they like to use it combined with exercise or sports and they're getting, you know, benefits out of it that are a little bit harder to measure, but things, you know, like reducing their anxiety or making their sport or exercise more enjoyable, um, decreasing, you know, the pain that they might experience, helping them sleep better, helping them recover, um, those sorts of things. So uh, there's uh, some clear health concerns when it comes to marijuana. Most of it has to do when you're smoking it. It's definitely not good for the lungs. Uh, in the long run. So, I mean, that's one, one part of it though, at least. Absolutely. I mean, that's the other thing. And, you know, I definitely wanted to be clear with our readers that I'm not, you know, endorsing it, uh, the use of marijuana for sports. Right. Um, and that people who do use it for exercise, you know, there are some, uh, health concerns to consider, as you mentioned, you know, the lung effects are a big one. Um, there's definite, definitely evidence that it can cause some lung damage. That's according to the American Lung Association. They're very, you know, clear about that, um, you know, and it's like you said, especially people who are smoking it. Um, and then also the other thing is, you know, you compare cigarettes to uh, marijuana smoke. Um, typically when people smoke marijuana, they hold it in their lungs for longer. Um, and there are a lot of the same, you know, toxins and carcinogens um, and tar in marijuana smoke that's in cigarette smoke. And uh, you're holding it in your lungs typically for longer. So you can get more exposure to those toxins. So if you're smoking it, um, that's definitely a health concern for anyone, but especially for someone who depends on their aerobic capacity as an athlete. One of the things that it comes to when it comes to marijuana that we've been hearing for a long time, and this is across the board from advocates to even lawmakers, 
is that it's still classified as a Schedule One drug. So really to do any studies with it, clinical trials, all of that, it's really tough to do. So it's really tough to get a lot of data on marijuana, how it affects the body, all that, because of that classification. Yeah, and that's one of the real you know, downsides and unfortunate aspects of this is, um, you know, obviously lawmakers have their point of view, but there are a lot of people who are using um, cannabis for various reasons, um, and yet, you know, the sort of research that we can do on it is, is limited. I talked to one researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder, um, Dr. Angela Bryan, and she, you know, her whole mission um, in public health is to try to find ways to help people exercise and take better care of their health. And she, you know, did a survey of, of cannabis users and found that so many of them were exercising. Um, and that sort of led her to want to study, you know, why are so many people using uh, marijuana to exercise? And yet, you know, she has a lot of trouble trying to, you know, study this. Um, she can't, you know, typically as a researcher, when you want to study something like this substance, you would bring people into the lab, you would have them consume it, put them on a treadmill and see how it affects their performance, have them do strength, you know, or test of their strengths and that kind of thing. But, you know, she's, because of the laws, she's not allowed to have it on campus. She can't instruct people to use it. You know, she can't give them any sort of um, instructions that would, you know, end up in them potentially using it at her behest. So they, at the University of Colorado, had to actually divide, um, develop a mobile lab um, in order to study this, um, people using cannabis. And what they do is people tell them when they're going to use, um, you know, cannabis. So they have to drive the lab to their home while these people consume it in the privacy of their homes. Right. Then they come out <laughs> into, the, into the van and they, you know, run the blunt test on them. Uh, then they go back inside and then they have to come to the lab um, at another time on a day when they've used marijuana and then they get on the treadmill and then, you know, on a day when they haven't used it, they have to come back to the lab, you know, to get on the treadmill and do these tests and, you know, blood tests and all these things. So it's, there's all these hurdles involved that make it very difficult to, you know, to study, yeah. um, you know, the relationship between cannabis and exercise and sports and, and health in general. Yeah. And, and still through all of this, you know, from, uh, you know, people just working out regularly to all, all the way to elite athletes, you know, some of these workouts, you know, smoking and then going and, and having your workout have become more popular. And, and as we kind of mentioned earlier on, you know, the majority of people say it helps them either with pain or to sleep better, get, get better rest and recover from those workouts. Uh, and then, and as you mentioned too, calming them down, the anxiety of like performance anxiety helps them a lot with that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, there's definitely, as we mentioned earlier, there's, you know, some concerns when you use uh, marijuana about its effects on the lungs. And obviously there have also been a lot of studies showing that it can imp impair your you know, judgment and decision-making ability, your reaction time. Um, so that's an issue if you're, you know, playing baseball, for example, you got a you know, fastball coming at you, this might affect your reaction time. Right. But um, there are so many athletes, and this was something that really struck me um, when I was reporting on this, you know, who say that when they use um, cannabis, um, for their exercise or sport, it really helps them concentrate on their sport. It helps them, you know, um, become dialed in, you know, where they can just really focus on the task at hand. Um, and another thing it does is that it makes, you know, these people report that it makes the exercise or sport feel so much more fun and enjoyable. And, um, you know, I interviewed um, the author of a new book called uh, Runner's High. His name is Josiah Hesse. And he was someone who hated exercise, never wanted to do it, you know, never voluntarily exercised a day in his life, he said, um, you know, but decided he had to exercise, you know, to improve his health and just, 
really like a lot of people hated running or doing anything exercise related. And then one day he took an edible and then went for a run. And he said it was one of the best experiences he ever had. It just right. running up a hill felt effortless. Um, it's now the highlight of his day. He said, it's like, you know, his cocktail and slippers at the end of the day doing a <laughs> edible, um, <laughs> infused run. Um, and so, it, you know, that's also something that, um, at least anecdotally researchers are finding is that, um, people who do exercise in sports on marijuana, they say that it makes it more fun. It also makes the time go by faster. If you're a oh, cyclist definitely. or a runner and you're doing, you know, a four hour run or, or bike ride, uh, supposedly, one of the benefits is people say it goes by like that and it just feels much more enjoyable as, as opposed to this long, hard vlog. Anahad O'Connor, health reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Finally, for this week, the CDC has issued new guidance saying that everyone should wear masks in certain high transmission indoor areas, regardless of vaccination status. And they also said that there should be universal masking for schools. This comes as the Delta variant continues to spread throughout the country. Public health officials are also worried that more variants could be on their way, and the system to sequence the genetic mutations of the virus isn't ready to track them. Right now, the U.S. is only sequencing about 10% of all COVID cases, and more needs to be done so that another variant doesn't catch us by surprise. For more on this, we'll speak to Cynthia Coons, Healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Yeah, it's pretty surprising, actually. We have the technology. We do have labs up and ready to go. And there are people, very motivated scientists, willing and interested in doing this work. There just isn't a lot of money for it. And so one of the problems with genetic um, sequencing is that it's not paid for by insurance. So when, if you were to go get a COVID test, that might be covered by insurance. But the next step of taking that sample from the lab that tested you into a lab that would then do the genomic sequencing isn't covered. It has to be funded. Basically, typically, it's funded through public health and government money. And public health is chronically underfunded in this country. And this just falls into that bucket. So Outside of the public health realm, the other labs that exist to do this work are academic labs and some commercial labs that decided to just do it themselves and pay for it themselves because they can't get the funding. And what was remarkable was in the academic community, I just talked to so many smart people who had been ready to sequence and trying to get money for over a year. But there was just they weren't getting grants. They weren't getting money because they were getting denied because money was going towards testing instead. Or there were people who just didn't recognize the need for surveillance early on. And then, boom, we ended up in the situation this year where we could see in last year, we could see Alpha, the UK, a variant as some were calling it in the beginning, start to take over. And now, of course, we're seeing this with Delta again. So I think it's become really quite clear that we can't waste any time now. We need to unify the efforts that are going on around the country and really work our way into some communities where the, the sequencing isn't getting done and allocate resources to do this really comprehensively. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the big worry is if that another dangerous virus comes to the United States, we might be at risk of catching it too late. You know, it's going to take hold really quickly and we're not going to be able to catch up again. You mentioned how... You know, a lot of the early money was going into testing and, and all sorts of that. You you actually talk about a lab in Queens, New York, uh, the Pandemic Response Lab, and they started off as a big testing lab. Then everything kind of started dying down now, and then they moved into uh, trying to sequence the genomes of this thing. They kind of just did it on their own. There was no direction for them to do it. They just saw the need for it, and we're doing it for free uh, for quite a while as well, too. 
Yeah, that was really amazing. When I first got acquainted with them, I'd seen their data in an analyst note, and they had already captured that there was a certain type of mutation in a lot of uh, cases in New York City. And that mutation was important because it meant that if a patient had that mutation, if you gave them monoclonal antibodies, which is a type of treatment that's given to certain earlier stage patients, those wouldn't work. Basically, there was a mutation a couple months ago, very evident, it was very evident that that was working its way around monoclonal antibodies. So that was very important data. And so I thought, oh, let me, let me reach out to these guys and see what they're doing. And what I came to find was that they were not able to get the money from anywhere else to set up sequencing, but they were so motivated, partly by the scientific connections they had and some of the people they had hired, that they decided to just pay for it out of their own pocket. And so the company that started the pandemic response lab, they're actually like a robotics um, lab supply company. So they had machines. That was one thing that they had going for them. And their business obviously benefited from some of the ramp up in, in laboratory testing during the pandemic. So they had some funding to work with, but it's just remarkable that we were relying on a, a large chunk of New York City sequencing happening through a group that was just doing it because they, it was the right thing to do. You mentioned uh, a little bit about why the sequencing is so important, but everybody's kind of goals of using that sequencing data is different. You know, on the federal level, they might have different goals on using that data and even more, you know, smaller, more granular, you know, state and local governments might have different ideas with that. But tell us a little bit about about why it can be helpful, because in the long term, pharmaceutical companies can start planning booster shots, things like that, which we've already seen Pfizer and Moderna saying we might need these but they need to know which way the virus is mutating so that they can plan for that. Yeah, so it's interesting. When we talk about national priorities and local priorities, of course there's this overarching priority of ending the pandemic. But on a national level, there's only so much they can do because we have a system where states run their health departments. So each state has its own health department, and that's why we've had different masking rules or school rules or, or so on and so forth. We've had a lot of different regulations, so in even in neighboring states. So that's just the way we set up our system here, and that's a that that creates you know some some impediments for the CDC to say go out and tell states to do X, Y, or Z because states have the opportunity and autonomy to make some decisions themselves. So at the end of the day, the local level, what you really want is you want your sequencing information fast enough so you're getting the data back in time to say, oh, wait a second, something's happening. We have a new mutation in this community because it's not as though you discover a mutation, by the way. A scientist wouldn't find one and immediately say, like, oh, we've got X, Y, or Z mutation. What they're discovering is a change in a disease that's oh, a virus that's constantly changing, but they're discovering it enough time to say that, oh, this is significant because they're also seeing the manifestations in the population of people say maybe more people are getting sicker or they're getting more severely ill when they get sick or it's a different age patient population. So they can sort of say, okay, this is happening. So this is really important to note because it underscores why you need more and more sequencing. You can't figure this out with just one or two samples here or there. You need a lot of this going on. But then they can do things like say, okay, we may need to reenact masking measures or we may need to I don't know, do school closures when there's a quarantine instead of just quarantining a classroom. I'm, I'm just, you know, spitballing here, right, but right. there's public health measures that they could use. But the most critical thing is there has to be enough sequencing going on and fast enough, because right now the data is coming back in some places in two weeks, three weeks, the patient, you know, patient zero and all their contacts may be out of isolation already. And so we're not getting the data fast enough to figure out how to, to do anything with it that could actually change the course of the pandemic. How, how much sequencing are we doing right now in the United States? 
So the CDC estimates we're doing about 10%, which is actually a good level from just the strict. There's sort of these public health rules of thumb, like we should be doing some say 5%, some say 10% of all positive samples to know what's going on. The problem with a country as big as the United States and something that quite a few scientists have pointed out to me is 10% as a rule of thumb doesn't really get to the the heart of the matter, because what we really need to make sure is happening in the U.S. is that we're getting enough samples from enough different places. So maybe we're sequencing really aggressive in, I don't know, Wyoming is actually a state that stands out that's doing a lot of sequencing, but it's a very small population. So we need to make sure that we're getting sequencing, say, North Dakota is doing sufficient sequencing. Or right now I've got Missouri and Arkansas, states that we need to have a lot of sequencing going on because their caseloads are rising really quickly. So saying 10% at the federal level, it's kind of hard to parse because their data that they give out, it's, it's not that clear cut exactly how much they're getting from what jurisdiction. And so in jurisdictions where they're not getting that much sampling data, they're lumping it with other states. And so that becomes harder and harder to interpret in terms of what's going on where. So the sequencing, the genetic sequencing has not been a big priority for some time, but the Biden administration did announce already some funding for this. I guess it's $1.7 billion in funding to make more of a priority of this. How is that going to be used? So there are a couple of different ways that money is going to be spent. Some of it's going to be spent on the state health departments, which is good. That's a really good way to allocate money because they need more equipment. They need more space. They need to be able to make hires, you know, have long-term bigger staff, et cetera. So that's a good thing. Then there's different chunks of money that are going towards things called centers of excellence. That actually, I think, is really quite meaningful, even though it's a little bit academic. It is partnerships between academic labs and state health labs. But what I found is that academic labs have a ton of capacity, but they have a really hard time getting funding or have had in this crisis. So that's going to be really important. But the CDC said that that money is not for the centers of excellence, not coming until fiscal 2022. And then the last piece is what they're calling a national bioinformatics superhighway. And that's to help make the communications a lot quicker because, see, the goal or the dream here that one scientist said to me, and I think it's really a perfect analogy, is what we want is, say, like the National Hurricane Center style map where you or I could log on and say we had a trip planned to Missouri. And then we take a look at the data and say, like, okay, wait a second. I know what's going on right now. And I know X or Y or Z mutation is there. I maybe don't want to make that decision. That data should also be in the public's hands. And there's been a bit of a reluctance, I think, to make public data publicly available that quickly. I don't know if it's a reluctance or just a lack of, say, tools that have been built to do that, but I think that's got to be another priority. But the CDC has said that that is a multi-year project, yeah. so it's probably not coming anytime soon. Unfortunately, right? A system like that would be super helpful, as you said, just for a planning, purely planning thing, you know, for the public. But hopefully this is becoming more of a priority now, you know, For a lot of people, you know, the vaccines came and we thought the pandemic was getting under control and the Delta variant is really kind of wreaking havoc in a lot of the unvaccinated population. So it is something that we need to turn our attention to to continue monitoring how the virus is mutating. So hopefully we do get a handle on all of that. Cynthia Coons, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.